Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Today I'm talking with Dr. Jan English Lewick, author of the second edition of Cultures at Silicon Valley, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Dr. English Lewick, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I've actually had the pleasure of knowing you for many years through the Society for the Anthropology of Work, uh, but could you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I'm an anthropologist. I think uh, I also identify as a futurist as somebody who studies the future, which sounds like an odd thing to do because, well, the future hasn't happened yet. Um, But it all started in growing up in the Central Valley in California. And I I think I was really sensitized to the fact that there were so many different cultures there because of agriculture, that it really made me aware of the differences between people's social worlds. And also, I wasn't a particularly wealthy kid, and so I was also really aware of class differences um, as I grew up there. And so when I discovered anthropology, it was an epiphany for me to to really see that there was a logic behind all those differences that I'd been observing growing up. And so I was was like a a fish in water discovering anthropology. It, It was something that really helped me explain the world around me and and engage me as a human being and also as an intellectual. So um, growing up in Fresno County, um, I I went to Fresno State first um, as an undergraduate and then to UC Santa Barbara to finish my master's and my doctorate. And that kind of work took me all over the place. Um, I did my master's work in Suriname, looking at a small community of Maroons, of African descendants who had created societies in the rainforest, uh, who were the descendants of runaway slaves. And then I started really being intrigued by social change and started studying the social movement of holistic health um, in California. And at the time, that was kind of a brave thing for a graduate student to do, to look at the United States but I was really interested in how people create deliberate futures, how they create social change. And so that work was really intriguing to me. Uh, and I finished my dissertation, published it as a book, and then went to China uh, to teach. It sounds, it's, it's not quite like teaching English. I was teaching people who were going, who were scientists who were going to go abroad how to adapt to the culture change of going to the West from China. But I was also doing research on Chinese scientists and technologists and and their understanding of the futures they were trying to create. So I became increasingly intrigued by how scientists and technologists have a very keen idea of what kind of future that they're trying to create. And so When the job opened up at San Jose State for me to um, start thinking about how the people here were reshaping the future, uh, 
it was a fantastic opportunity. And so I jumped on this job where I've now been for, gee, 27 years. And and while I was at this job um, I, here at San Jose State, I also had the opportunity to to work with the Institute for the Future. And they've helped define my career as both an anthropologist uh, and as someone who does anticipatory anthropology, looking at the anthropology of the future, but mostly looking through the lens of work, like what are people's working lives? Even when I was uh, looking at alternative healers, it was like alternative healers as a form of work, science and technology as a form of work. And since Silicon Valley is a place heavily defined by work, um, this place has been a paradise as a field site. Well, and I'd ask how you first got the idea for Cultures at Silicon Valley, but but it sounds like that answer is sort of embedded um, in what you just said. But but how did you start envisioning this specific book? Well, when I was hired at San Jose State, I was actually hired with the specific task of creating the Silicon Valley Cultures Project, a way of really looking at Silicon Valley as an anthropologist. And I joined with a colleague, Chuck Dara and another colleague, James Freeman, and of course, a whole host of students and and other colleagues that kind of came and went through this project. And we decided to create this umbrella project, the Silicon Valley Cultures Project, that looked at the impact of a very distinctive form of work, the impact of technology, the impact of being in an area, the San Francisco Bay Area, which is... um, a site of heavy globalization. I mean, it bounces between 35 and 40% foreign born. And to begin to think about how do people create an identity as people who live in Silicon Valley. So I think the book emerged from this project as we were doing smaller projects to try and figure out, you know, what were the answers to those questions? Um, We got a couple of grants that helped us pull that together, one from the National Science Foundation and one from Alfred P. Sloan. And those helped us understand the relationship between work and family and also between work and identity. And those projects, I think, gave me the idea of pulling all those pieces together because the books that were coming out on Silicon Valley were either about the CEOs or the business environment, or maybe sometimes they would be about a specific ethnic group, you know, the Chinese of Silicon Valley. But there really wasn't anything that was looking at that bigger picture of how ethnicity and diversity and work all affected the lives of people in the greater region. So I I felt compelled to put that together in that first book. Well, and that's a pretty large and complex topic. So how did you set out to to research that? What did your research look like for that project? Well, I think it came from a number of different areas. Uh, I mean, I did have a number of small projects that I would do with students, almost as class projects, where we would look at things like... um, intercultural interactions, you know, go out and sort of harvesting narratives of people of what happens when you live with 150 different cultures in a school or in a safe way or in a, in, 
in a, a field where people are playing soccer? You know, how did those interactions happen in every day when you're encountering other cultures? And so that that was sort of a I would say that was a small project, but it was a, a seed for beginning to look at these larger complex issues. And so that's why um, Dr. Dara and I put together our National Science Foundation application on looking at work and identity and community in Silicon Valley. Like how do these different cultures interact in the context of workplaces? And that meant going out into a variety of different workplaces. And, and you know, we sampled different kinds of workplaces. They weren't all high tech. Uh, this isn't a place that just has high tech. You still have to buy groceries. You still have to get your hair cut. But what did life look like in those workplaces in this very distinctive multicultural environment? And, and how did people navigate that? And so some of that was done through observation. Uh, in particular, the project that we did with Alfred P. Sloan allowed us to do um, many hundreds of hours of observation, um, really closer to thousands of hours of observation of people in workplaces and people at home. And also uh, a number of ethnographic interviews done in workplaces and in home. And by interview, I often mean that that classic uh, Spradley tour where we would go into people's workplaces and we would just be obnoxious and pesky about, could you open your drawers and tell us about what all these things are and have them tell us about every photo and every object around them and how that figured into their lives. And then these stories would start to come out about what what this team meant to them when they, this little object that's on a desk that was something that the team had, but that team has long since disintegrated, but it formed the basis of a network, and we'd get this whole story out of it. And so I, I almost think of it as a, a kind of foraging, where we were foraging for stories about work, identity, and community uh, just by going into people's lives and, and doing the archaeology of the objects in their contemporary life. So that research was... Um, Unusual at the time to really start interviewing people through the lens of the material culture in their lives, but I think that that's become very standard now for anthropologists. Well, and, and that research all came together and, and resulted in the publication of Cultures at Silicon Valley in 2002. So what made you decide to revisit that book and go ahead and, and write a new edition? Well, that's a, a wonderful question. I think in part because we had written several books in between that first edition and the second edition. I, uh, I, we wrote a book on the working lives of people in Silicon Valley. Uh, I also then was really intrigued with how people managed to be human. That is to say, how did they take care of their bodies during all this? Because in many ways, the work that they did took a toll. And so I, I had started doing research on uh, a book that was on being and well-being, uh, health and the working bodies of Silicon Valley. And in the course of doing the research for that book, I was tripping over all of these changes that were occurring. And this was about, you know, 2010 or so. 
And, and of course, because I did work with the Institute for the Future, I kept doing research on smaller projects um, through the 2010s and uh, did some work with uh, clean technology and the kind of social life of the people that, was, that were working in clean technology. But I, I would say it's almost inductive. As I did these smaller projects, I kept tripping over these much bigger stories and by the time, I would say somewhere around 2014, uh, I realized that so much of what had been in that 2002 version had changed that I really had to revisit it. Uh, the corporate landscape of the Valley had changed. At the time we did the book, or I did the, started working on the book in 2002, um, there really wasn't, I mean, Google was a startup. Uh, and the whole idea of Web 2.0, which is the idea that people would make money off of uh, user-generated content, that had just exploded to become a whole new set of companies uh, that weren't just doing kind of the plumbing of the internet, but doing some really interesting and widespread work of Facebook, Google, uh, all of those companies kind of had appeared. And people in the Silicon Valley had weathered a couple of, a couple more of those boom and busts that are the, kind of the long-term story of this place. But in particular, the dot-com bust of the early 2000s and then the global recession of 2008. And yet they stayed. And so I really wanted to see what is the narrative that is driving people to stay here in spite of the economic insecurity? And of course, the, the biggest change probably is the technology itself and what that has done. Uh, in 2002, people had cell phones, they had mobile phones, but very few people had smartphones. And by 2014, smartphones were virtually ubiquitous. And that meant that the thing that I was seeing in 2002 about the mobility of work, that work could kind of follow people along, that was ever so much easier uh, if you have a little computer in your pocket that is your smartphone. Um, and then, of course, in terms of diversity, there had been a number of changes, including the war on terror and the, the different... The, the shakiness of our immigration policies. And one of the things that was really inherent in the early version is that Silicon Valley, even though people like to say that it's you know the great American experiment, uh, it's in part because Silicon Valley is subject to some really good immigration policies for letting people in to do innovative work from all over the world. And because we can harvest talent from all over the world, that, that was really one of the big factors in creating Silicon Valley. And after 2002, we became much more suspicious of immigration and our policies were much less flexible about letting people in. And so there were some really interesting kind of uh, changes in that, in that diversity environment that I wanted to track. And of course, uh, one of, the, I think, the big stories that made it intriguing is that in 2002, 
there were people who thought of Silicon Valley, but it wasn't the kind of household word that it became uh, more than a decade later. Uh, there was no HBO series, Silicon Valley, that really brought it to the lips of everybody. And so it created a kind of unique stereotype that is almost uh, this imaginary place that really is partly connected to the real place. But the fact that the people thought they knew what it was, I think really intrigued me and it made me want to revisit the material. Well, so I, I know how I have gone about writing books but I have no idea how one goes about rewriting a book into a second edition. So I wondered, could you tell me a little bit about how do you, how do you do that? Where do you start and, and what does that process look like? Uh, well, the, this is a, a, a great question because in many ways I had never written a second edition of anything. So uh, I had to think through what, well, what is the, what do I want to accomplish with this? And what, so I had literally pieces of paper all around my office, gigantic pieces of paper with writing on it that were sort of like, these are the big stories, the big changes that I wanted to address. And, and those included uh, the things that I've talked about, changes in the business landscape, changes in technology, changes in demography, um, and, and changes in the everyday experiences of life, uh, especially the lives of workers. Uh, as well as some of the big geographic changes that in 2002, you could almost draw a circle around Santa Clara County with little bits around it and call that Silicon Valley. And by a decade later, it had expanded to include San Francisco, for example. Uh, so I had those big changes uppermost in my mind. But I had to think, well, how do I incorporate those changes? And some of it had to do with what were the research strategies that I needed to have in order to make this update. Um, yes, I'd continued to do field work. I had a ton of ethnographic data on a variety of topics from other projects that I could mine, but I had to go out and collect new information. And I wanted it to be new information about those big changes. So I had to think in a very targeted way, what new ethnography do I need to, to capture some of those stories? So it meant that I had to go and spend a lot of time in San Francisco with the tech workers that identified with Silicon Valley, uh, but would not have done so even a decade ago. And, and I had to look at the kind of workers that were in the new shared economy spaces that didn't exist um, when the book, when the first edition was originally written. So I deliberately looked at people who were working at co-working spaces or working in the contingent slash gig economy. Um, and so I, w I went out and I captured a whole bunch of new ethnographic information to incorporate. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the actual rewriting had to do with what stories have aged. To just go through the first edition and say, this story just no longer has much validity because it stopped, it stopped being true. It stopped being valid for what is happening now. So 
I, I went through and I thought, okay, this goes, this goes, this goes, this goes, this goes. In the original edition, uh, I tried to blend demographic and statistical information with the ethnographic stories that I found. Um, but that meant in the second edition, I had to go through and update all that statistical information. And I, I made some interesting discoveries. For example, in, in the 2000s and late 1990s, people were collecting much more demographic information and publishing it than they are in 2014, 2015, 2016. That, that, that isn't where people are collecting information. So it, it wasn't just as simple as saying, oh, well, what is the current source of information about intermarriage between Latinos and Asians in Silicon Valley. There wasn't any. Uh, that hadn't been tracked. It was something that had been tracked uh, around 2000, but was not being tracked now. So I would had to think, well, where, where would I find the nearest proxy for that? So updating all that statistical information was a huge task, um, and I think a vital one. And then um, I, I'd have to replace the aged stories with the newer stories. So I would write those newer stories and, and put them in the appropriate place in the new outline of the book. And so uh, virtually every paragraph in the second edition had some change. And that was... a. Uh, an interesting challenge because many of the second editions I had seen, you know, they plop a, a new entry, a new introduction, a new epilogue, but the body of the book remains very consistent. This wasn't like that. This had to change throughout. I had to ask myself at every step, how has this phenomena changed in the last two decades? And, and really try and tell that story. Well, just sort of a, a quick side question. Do you have any theories as to why it would be that we're collecting less statistical information of the kind you're talking about than we were in the 90s and 2000s? It, that seems interestingly counterintuitive to me because I feel like the quantification of life has just um, exacerbated. And yet the fact that you had trouble finding those new statistics to parallel the older set that's really interesting to me. Uh, some of it could be that the new census material is not out for 2020. And, and maybe some of those answers could be part of that. But the statistics that I was looking at were, were collected by nonprofits or in, uh, in the first edition, by nonprofits or by counties or by the state. And they just weren't looking at those issues anymore. And I do wonder about why that's the case. And my suspicion by the time I wrote the end of the book is that we are drifting away. And it seems contradictory. It seems like diversity is still front and center of our thinking. But the way we approach diversity is a little bit different than it was in, say, the year 2000, in part because it of the complexity of ethnicity that the one of the thing if you're going to count something you know you you need to know what it is 
And I realized that the one of the implications of deep diversity, the idea that you have very complex and very real diversity in a place where, where it has an impact in life, is that it becomes harder and harder to actually figure out what's in a category. Like how, like, how do you take someone like Kamala Harris and start to parse her ethnicity and then count her? And, and I think that as we've become more complex in our identities, it's harder to count us. <laughs> it's harder to get that nice, clear, crisp demographic information. And so I suspect that that's why I'm seeing a little bit less of it. That's really interesting. I, I really hadn't thought about that. Um, it, you mentioned earlier that one of the choices you had to make in working on the second edition of Cultures at Silicon Valley was which stories to leave out now and which stories to include. And in your prologue, you tell the stories of Tavi and Alberto. You describe their morning routines. And, and what made you decide to start the book with these stories? Um, one of the ways that I really try to approach the stories in the book, and, and there's sort of an uh, an overarching narrative arc, which I, I hope readers have discerned, that it kind of starts in the morning and ends in the evening, so that you're looking at a day in the life of a Silicon Valley worker in each chapter as you sort of, like it starts off in the morning, and in the middle of the book, it's during the day, and then it sort of ends with going home. Um, so part of it is that larger narrative arc that I would start out with morning stories. But the, the reason I selected those people to start is I think that they were excellent exemplars of the kind of new Silicon Valley worker that didn't quite exist in 2000. Um, they're in San Francisco. Uh, they come, they've jumped careers uh, going from like Tavi started out in feminist studies and is now an engineer, that that they're they're bringing together a set of qualities that I think it would have been challenging um, to what workers were doing in 2000. So they told the kinds of changes and stories of workers' lives that I wanted to tell. That San Francisco, very uh, connected to Bay Area life narrative that maybe wasn't as evident in that those earlier groups of stories. Well, and you discuss the region of Silicon Valley and, and your study of it as having a, a broader significance as well. And you call it a, a bellwether beast. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Well, I think um, in that particular metaphor, which is a wonderful mixed metaphor, um, it's a beast because it's organic. It's not a machine. It, it's something that's organic and changing and growing, and it's got a life of its own. So that's why I didn't want to really represent it in a mechanistic way. But a bellwether is this fascinating idea that it shows that it's a, a phenomena that shows something about the future. And this is an area which is very self-conscious about its role in shaping the future. And in many ways, if you wandered through Silicon Valley, you wouldn't necessarily see anything that's different from any other um, urban space of its size. It, it just looks like you know an urban space. But 
the, in the lives of people, they're kind of experimenting with new practices. The people who are working in tech, for example, often have prototypes and new kinds of tech and a particular uh, attraction to trying out and experimenting on with tech that will tell us a little bit about, well, what does it mean when you use, um, for example, right at the time, uh, it was the ubiquity of smartphones. Of, But maybe now uh, there's an exp a lot of experimentation around AR and VR, um, augmented reality and virtual reality. And so try, how did those things get integrated and then play out in people's lives? So it's a bellwether of forecasting the impact of technology. It's a bellwether for looking at a globally relatively open community, or, or at least up to that point, a, a relatively open community. Uh, in terms of, of getting high-tech workers and a variety of different kinds of workers into the area. Uh, it's a bellwether for thinking about a more complex social life that blends. That there's an, an interesting term in gaming of blended reality where you play a game online and you also play the game IRL in real life. And, and I think that Silicon Valley has been a bellwether for how you blend that in real life life that looks just like any other place, but also that has a strong component of an online community. And, and so because I'm interested in people that are creating the future, uh, this has been a, a fascinating place to look at how people talk about the future, how they take actions to make particular futures. And I, I have looked at other high-tech places in the world, places like uh, uh, in New Zealand, in Dublin, in Taiwan, in China. And uh, they, they have an almost echo effect of, of what happens in Silicon Valley happens in those places a few years later. Um, and let me give you a concrete example. The when I went to New Zealand some time ago to look at the high tech communities there in the South Island, um, they were calling themselves Silicon Plains at the time. Uh, they were complaining about one of the things they disliked about high tech work and its impact was the erosion of the weekend. That 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 was something that was supposed to be sacred for the kind of recreation New Zealand is famous for. Well, Silicon Valley had that struggle a decade before of, okay, you've got this technology that brings work into life at any given moment, and the weekend is beginning to look an awful lot like a weekday. What does that do to the rest of your life? And so to that extent, it's really interesting to look at Silicon Valley is almost an early adopter of new practices. And it plays those new practices out in ways that people can start to see the consequences of those new practices. And so I think that that's the fascinating bellwether piece of that idea. And, and, and you just mentioned some of the ways that technology saturates people's lives. And, and one of those is what you call the colonization of life by work. And, and you, you just described a little bit about what that looks like, but I'm wondering, could you tell us 
what do you believe is, is fueling that colonization? And if Silicon Valley was grappling with it a decade before New Zealand in either or, or both places, what, if anything, is being done around that? Uh, there are a couple of ways to look at this. Uh, one is the sort of surface level of which the, in which the technologies that we have, when I first started doing this research, it was, it was literally people started having laptops and even fax machines in their homes. And so that, that was like the call, oh, work is creeping into people's homes and people started developing home offices kind of in their internal architecture of space. And, and that was 25 years ago. Uh, and that became accelerated as people's battery lives increased and their laptops could go many more places, whip out sm smartphones and that with long battery lives. And, and it really changes the environment in which you can take work. But I think an, the technology is only an enabling device. The expectations about work being completed and that it's our job as workers to finish a task, no matter where you have to do that or when you have to do that. That is a kind of social shift, I think, that I've also seen in the last 25 years from the what I think of as the breakdown of that industrial revolution. You have a home life and you have a work life and never the twain shall meet that that model has evaporated and we're almost seeing a pre-industrial revolution mode that your craft is in your home. You know, if you're a family farmer, for example, there's no distinction between work and family. It's just there. And these technologies have facilitated that, but so have the expectations of management. And by breaking work into projects and tasks, smaller and smaller tasks that have to be completed, but could be completed anywhere, uh, it has led to this colonization of work into life. Now, there's a comparable colonization of life into work that people are talking about how to manage their lives at the workplace. But I think the other hidden component of the colonization of work has been that the practices of work have colonized life in interesting ways. So that you have goals, you have objectives, you have missions, you have milestones. And, uh, and one of the ways I see this is uh, as, for example, the world of wearables has brought things like Fitbits uh, and all the concomitant uh, websites that support that kind of behavioral change to exercise more and eat differently. Uh, that that world is being handled almost as if it were work. You have a goal. You will do this many steps. You will go up this many flights of stairs. You will eat this many calories. And you will track that in a very quantified self way. And, and that explosion of the practices of work uh, to set, mile, to set objectives and have milestones and constantly collect data to know whether you're achieving those milestones. That, I think, is really interesting to start applying to your body, to how you raise your children, to how you uh, do the everyday practices of life. 
that that colonization of work practices is what I found most fascinating about going into the lives of people who were doing work in this place. One of the really interesting paradoxes that your work explores uh, within Silicon Valley is that this is a region that really prides itself on meritocracy, that people get ahead based on their own merits, their own hard work, their own genius. And yet, as you describe, social networks are incredibly powerful in Silicon Valley. So how do these things coexist and, and how do people make sense of the tensions between those, the power of those two very different things? That is a great question. And, and I think whenever I think about how you approach as an anthropologist the analysis of a culture, I'm hearkening back to my graduate student lectures with Elman Service, uh, an eminent anthropologist, who warned us that if you ever see an ethnography of a culture that makes perfect sense and has no internal contradictions, that is our incorrect ethnography, because that's just not the way people live. People have immense contradictions that they're constantly navigating, and, and it's those tensions between the contradictions that, that make up culture. And so uh, I don't, I, I know we have a tendency to grab those contradictions as, uh, as pundits and think, oh, look at that, there's hypocrisy. But it, it's a much more complicated story than that. And the contradiction, I think, is at the heart of the lived reality of what made Silicon Valley different in the 1980s and 90s and kind of continues today and is re reinforced by the technologies that we've invented about social networking is that one of the things that really made Silicon Valley distinct in its history is that it was less about the individual than it was about the network. And some social analysts who've looked at Silicon Valley have tracked very well that Silicon Valley is really good at creating, that Silicon Valley workers are good at creating networks and creating networks with weak ties that will give them a distinct advantage and, and, and harvesting the, the value of that network, that that's been part of the secret sauce of the area rather than assuming that just as an individual, you go from job to job and you're not, you're not taking all your connections and your networks with you, either literally by going from workplace to workplace or in terms of practice that you're, you're calling up and you're asking, nobody calls, you're, you're talking to people and you're asking them, uh, you know, how do I get help? How do I approach this problem? What do you think about it? And, and so the, social networking piece of this has been incredibly important. At the same time, there's a narrative of meritocracy uh, that has been part of the story of Silicon Valley and perhaps less of the reality of Silicon Valley. And it's not as if you can't pivot and create a new alternative. And I think in many ways, the story of Tavi is a great example of that. Someone who pivoted in her intellectual interests and followed an opportunity, but, you know, still maintained a kind of truth to herself about what she was going to do in her new life as an engineer. You know, she followed the opportunity. And that piece is, it tastes like meritocracy. But I 
think and the biggest critique of Silicon Valley is that the meritocracy story is not as true as they would like it to be, is an accurate one. That there are opportunities for people to pivot and create, reinvent themselves anew. But at the same time, those opportunities are constrained. <clears throat> they're constrained by your social network. They're constrained by your class status. They're constrained by your identity. Um, and, it, and as I was writing about that tension, I couldn't help but think about you know, the, classic, uh, the classic examination system of imperial China, where, yes, if you could get access to the material and, and master a body of knowledge and take an examination, you could become a bureaucrat, even if you weren't the child of a bureaucrat. On the other hand, what are the chances that you could get access to that knowledge and, <laughs> and master it and get the opportunity to take the examination if you weren't already in the social network that had that access. And so I, I feel as if there's a, um, a, an, an analogous situation in Silicon Valley. Yes, the opportunities are there, but the opportunities are more there for some people and not for others. And in part, that's because of your social network. Well, and I think that actually connects to my next question, that is that you, you talk about how Silicon Valley is a deeply diverse and heterogeneous place, and it's one that celebrates cultural differences, but that that celebration of, of cultural difference can sometimes be used as a, a smokescreen of sorts for uh, obscuring other kinds of differences. Can you tell me about that and how it works? Sure, and, and I think that that smokescreen works on, on two levels. Uh, and, and I'd hear this phrase when talking to people that they would say it's, and, and this is with quotations around it, just culture. Like, why is this person doing that? Oh, that's just culture. And, and it would almost be this kind of reductionist explanation, the stereotypic explanation to say, well, why aren't there more uh, Latinas in, in engineering schools? Oh, that's just culture. And, and it becomes a, almost a stereotypic excuse of not looking at sort of a deeper set of constraints around class and access, um, around the kind of social networks that people are in that can give you one kind of opportunity and not another. So that it, it, it becomes a, a sort of excuse. And again, drawing uh, comparatively on other anthropological literatures, um, the Coopers write about South Africa, where the word culture has become almost almost an excuse for for a kind of insidious soft racism that that you could just if you can say it's just culture, that becomes a smokescreen for not examining these harder questions about. And, and what are people's constraints in that culture? Um, as well as the fact that that kind of obscures the fact that you don't necessarily know what culture people actually belong to or identify with, because it's not as if you, you, you are in a, a box that has only one label on it. And so it's a, it's a very 
difficult thing to use for attribution, but people do it because it's kind of an easy and stereotypic way to describe and explain behavior. But it also makes sure that you can't actually dig into some of the, the deeper issues that we don't like to talk about, such as class. Well, and is that related to the term you use, the new ethro ethnocentrism? So I, I've taught about ethnocentrism, but I hadn't heard the term new ethnocentrism before. So I, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that and, and how it relates to Silicon Valley. Sure. And, and I think that that has to do with the complexity of deep diversity. And deep diversity is an idea that I tripped over uh, reading Clifford Geertz. And, and he's actually citing Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher who was trying to understand the nature of Canada and the way in which diversity works. And, and there are a couple of different elements of deep diversity that I think are relevant to Silicon Valley. Uh, one is complexity, that there are many, many, many different kinds of diversity. And even if you just took, took something like ancestral diversity or national origin, there are hundreds of different options. And then it's made more complex by the blending of different culture identities, which happens all the time in the Bay Area. And so that makes it even more difficult to say, oh, you are in this box. Uh, and the other piece of deep diversity is, uh, and that Taylor talked about and that Geertz referenced, is that the idea that it isn't just you know, the holidays you celebrate or the way in which your name is pronounced, but the way in which you approach family and work and time and, and some other really significant differences, that those differences matter and that you have to address the fact that you may have hundreds of different attitudes about what a deadline means. So how do you create a workplace that meaningfully engages with those kinds of differences? And so... Out of this idea um, emerged this notion of a new ethnocentrism. And it's not just the ethnocentrism of I'm comfortable with my culture and, and uncomfortable with the expectations that are not met by your culture. It's I can't even figure out what my culture is. And I probably can't figure out what your culture is. So I attribute some stereotype, but the chances that the chances are good that it's not going to be accurate because you're more complex than that. And, and so I think that this is a phenomenon that has emerged from the global city that makes ethnocentrism a, a qualitatively different experience than it was when we first were coming up with that idea a century ago. That's interesting because it's less of a rejection of another's culture and its perspective than an inability to locate that culture at all, as well as a sort of confusion about your own cultural origins. So you're not exactly sure what you would be accepting or rejecting in the first place. Exactly. That's exactly right. I like that messy cultural stuff. <laughs> um, so you write, uh, and I'm going to quote you here uh, because I like the phrasing so much. You write that Silicon Valley shows us what life can be like when the village plaza is decorated with internet graphics and the fabric of social life is woven from digital threads that link people together. And so if that's what Silicon Valley shows us, what can we learn from that? What should we take from that? 
Well, I think there are a number of ideas that you can take from that sentence, but what I was trying to convey with it uh, is the idea that, particularly as anthropologists, because we've dealt with, uh, we have a long history of the corpus of our ethnographies as largely places that you go to and you embed yourself and you see the physical and social reality and describe it as if it were somehow more real than the kind of village that has a million people in it. And, and, and there's so many layers to that. Uh, and, and I think it is an, an engagement with the idea that, for example, when I was a young master student going to Suriname to my village of Bitagron, I not only had, and there were about 250 people in that village, and, and I had every hut mapped, and you know, I had every kind of person accounted for in that village and their social roles. And, and I also uh, was trying to track a variety of practices around health and religion and modernization that were influencing the social life of that village. And that was a pretty monumental task at the time. If you add to that the contemporary experience of uh, an imagined life that is now connected through the internet, where your social community can be located in multiple places in, in very real senses. And, and I think this really, uh, a story that I collected while I was doing research for this book really grabbed me of someone uh, from Bangalore who was joking that they felt closer to their cousins in Silicon Valley than they did with someone across Bangalore because the people in Silicon Valley were constantly online with them and you could kind of see photos of what they had to eat and understand what they're doing from day to day, whereas the traffic was such in Bangalore that the cousin on the other side of Bangalore was almost invisible. <laughs> so, so here you have a, a, a place that is this bellwether, I'm using that term again, of what it's like to create a social life that is distributed in, in both sides of the screen. It's, there's still a very real social life that's physical and face-to-face -face and experienced in everyday reality, but there's also this other complex social life that is lived on the other side of the screen. And so Silicon Valley is a nice illustration of what that means for all of its shiny bright lights and warts and pimples. You said at the start of the interview that you're both an anthropologist and a futurist. So what do you see the future holding for Silicon Valley? Uh, in many ways, the epilogue of my book tries to grapple with that. And, and I see a number of different challenges. Uh, I like to think that I'm an optimist, um, but then that is usually undone by looking at reality. And, <laughs> and so the, the challenges I see for Silicon Valley are profound. Um, in terms of their workplace, because they have so heavily relied on a workflow model that had open borders, not completely open borders, obviously, but our, our immigration policy really supported the idea that we in Silicon Valley could, could 
scoop off the cream of the crop of the entire planet. And so that, that in high-tech work or in creative work, that, that people would come to Silicon Valley either for education and then stay for the workplace or they would come for the work. Um, and that their dedication and expertise, because they're a self-selected population that's coming here in order to, to participate in Silicon Valley, that they were kind of the, the high-octane fuel of the region. And that is being undermined by the political reality that is you know, shutting off the flow of that comfortable sense of immigration. I mean, I'm really struck by people I interviewed two decades ago who were just overjoyed that they could come to an area where they could wear clothes and eat food and speak the language of another place in the world and not feel uncomfortable doing that. And that has shifted. People don't feel as comfortable displaying those differences in public. And, and I think that's going to have a very dampening effect on the, on the workplace. <clears throat> the tech itself, I think, is evolving. Uh, one of the things, that the Wild West feeling of the creation of new technology, I think, is going to become... Uh, dampened because these are the kinds of technologies that are entering people's lives in, around health, around the environment, um, into people's homes, uh, even the, the, the social networking technologies like Facebook and Google are being increasingly regulated. Uh, they've had to grow up as industries and, and they're going through growing pains. So I think that there's a, there's a real struggle about how can they become the kinds of companies that have to deal with regulations um, the way healthcare has or the energy system has or, or, or agriculture has? I think that they're, they're struggling to find that spot. And so the workers in those companies are feeling that kind of volatility, that kind of insecurity. And probably the biggest challenge is as an exemplar of late capitalism, <laughs> another thing like a bellwether is an example of, Silicon Valley is just hideously unequal. I mean, it has very high highs and very low lows. And that inequality is only growing, and it's growing rapidly. And you can only take that model so far. And I keep being surprised about how far we can take it. I keep thinking, Surely it cannot go much further than this, and then it does. But uh, the challenges of how to build a community when there's this much inequality, uh, when you have Silicon Valley has the, is an area that has the most billionaires of any place in the world, but it also has a growing population of homeless. And that, that discontinuity, I think, is going to be a challenge. The future of Silicon Valley is in play, and we don't quite know how that is going to play out. Well, I suppose on that one, we'll just have to wait for the third edition of the book. <laughs> so you, you've given us a, a really good sense of this second edition of the book and, and what it contains. But I wondered if you could tell me, what was the hardest part of putting together a second edition of Cultures at Silicon Valley? I think the hardest part for me to in writing this book was actually the epilogue of, of trying to really engage with the future of Silicon Valley and not be so depressing. 
Uh, I had to write and rewrite and show this to people and rewrite it again and again and again because it kept coming out so bleak. And I thought, oh, this is not the way I want to do this. Um, I really need to use my techniques as a forecaster to really create a coherent alternative futures and to find a future that was somewhat optimistic was a challenge. Uh, at the In the first edition, I was actually fairly optimistic about the potential for deep diver- for Silicon Valley as a place of experimentation for deep diversity, that that there was a a real engagement with how do you have a multicultural place that can leverage the the gifts that people bring from different cultures and not implode. And I found myself increasingly depressed about this place's ability to do that because the the inequality and the class differences that were emerging uh, were were sobering. In many ways, uh, the demographic pattern of the 2002 book, which was towards increasing diversity, has begun to reverse itself. Uh, that the most elite places in Silicon Valley are whitening. They're actually reversing the cultural diversity. And so trying to engage with that bleaker future that undermined my optimism, that was difficult to write about. Well, in contrast, what was the most fun part of writing the second edition? I think some of the things that have happened in Silicon Valley in the last 15 years or so are kind of fun. The, the maker movement is fun. Uh, that, that People are doing things that are creative and engaging. And I loved doing the field work with those folks. I loved going into maker spaces. And I was so excited when I made my first circuit myself and it did what I wanted it to do. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is what field work is supposed to be like. So I think some of that joy came through in writing those sections. So uh, the, the kind of new discoveries about uh, bringing design into work. And that is, that is one of the big shifts that has occurred is that the, the design world is much more prominent in the kind of work that's done in Silicon Valley than it was decades ago. And, and those are a fascinating group of people and a lot of fun to work with. Um, and writing about them, I think, was was a joy. Well, that actually makes me wonder. So you're a resident of Silicon Valley as well as a researcher of Silicon Valley. And I, I wonder how has doing this now, you know, decades of fieldwork, how has this project impacted you personally? Uh, well, I, I think if you go back and look at some of the ways that I talk about Silicon Valley, I find it very hard to struggle with the pronouns these days. Are they they or are they we? And and uh, and I find that uh, is an interesting thing to engage with because it's difficult for me to separate myself as someone who both lives in this area and works with industry and trains students to become applied anthropologists that end up with jobs at Google, that, that, that I have become part of that Silicon Valley industrial complex. I also create narratives 
that are referenced about Silicon Valley. One of the things that's really obvious about this place is it has an identity because people write about it as if it is a, simple, a different place. And I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that shapes the narrative of Silicon Valley. So, so I've become increasingly involved in the fate of this place. Uh, I've raised a family here. Uh, it, my kids are part of this world. And so when I think about the bleaker future, I can't help myself but think about the fate of those students I trained who are working in Google, what's going to happen to them. And so I, I do find myself conflicted. But realistically, I think anthropologists always feel an emotional connection to the topics that we study. I still feel an emotional connection to Suriname or an emotional connection to my alternative healers from my dissertation. So it's not as if as if we can engage in the fantasy of objectivity completely. But it's, I certainly see this place as increasingly part of my story and, and that I'm part of the story of Silicon Valley. Well, and since we've sort of noted that, that you are one of the storytellers of Silicon Valley, if readers were to read these stories, were to read your books, um, the original uh, Cultures at Silicon Valley, as well as the, the second edition, what would, if they took home only one thing, what would you want that to be from the reading of your books? So I think that what I would love people to get from the books is a sense of Silicon Valley as a real place with real people that have complicated lives that are very much like their own but yet a little bit different. Uh, and so I would love it if people who read the book got away from some of the stereotypes. I think Silicon Valley has become a proxy for how we feel about the technologies that come out of this place. So that many of the critiques of Silicon Valley have to do with, well, I hate that people are constantly looking at their smartphones. Instead of, hey, Silicon Valley is a place where you have real workers who have to educate their children. And this is a, a reality of this place. Well, I really appreciate your taking the, the time to talk with me about your book. And I know our listeners will too. But before I let you go, um, what will your next project be? Because I have been doing this research for about 25 years, I keep tripping over some interesting stories and, and interesting points of view, and I want to follow up on them. So that the arc of Jan's ethnographies about Silicon Valley is not done. <laughs> I do have a project that I'm working on. And in fact, uh, later this week, I'm going to meet with one, my research team, and we're going to begin to think about how we, how we actually, we're going to go out and collect some data on this. But I, I think of it as how do I reckon with the story of the contradictions of the three C's, counterculture, capitalism, and control and surveillance. That in the creation of Silicon Valley, uh, that creation narrative, it, the Bay Area, it, Silicon Valley is almost synonymous with the Bay Area. And the Bay Area is filled with some fascinating hippies. And those are some of the folks that created Silicon Valley and that continues to this day. 
And that counterculture is, I think, not homogenous. It is uh, an interesting and complex social phenomena and needs to be tracked down. And so it's a, been a great excuse to go out and start to do field work at places like Burning Man, uh, which is highly connected to Silicon Valley, but also to look in the lives of, of individual workers and people who live in the Valley and, and see how that countercultural narrative affects the way they do their work. And this is particularly important given that we're moving into the Internet of Things, uh, clean tech, uh, tech that is in people's homes, wearable, health tech, food tech, things that are connected to nature. And so that countercultural love of nature, I think, is going to play out in the way people think about designing technology. At the same time, they have to make money. That capitalism is still very real. So how do they accommodate the fact that the most sustainable technologies are probably ones that we need to sell less of because we need less stuff. And that contradiction is a little hard for those folks to deal with. So how are they accommodating that? How are they making sense of that? And then the other hidden piece of Silicon Valley's history is that it was part of the defense industry and that control and surveillance were very much in the DNA of the kinds of technologies that were being developed. And, and we see that today in the way in which these technologies enter people's lives. So I really want to look at the people who are making the technologies of the Internet of Things and see how these three things are playing out. So that's my dream of my next project, which I've already begun. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I will look forward to reading that book as well. Um, so thank you again for, for talking with us today. And thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure.